another episode of the Think Baby ADD podcast, and I'm your host Michelle. This is a really exciting episode because it is part of a, a special series. It's called Unstoppable Millennials. As many of you know, we have been doing this podcast and interviews for a while. We have interviewed different leaders in the space and. Discovering business applications of technology and data, and as well as the importance of the human-centered design. While talking to so many speakers, and we realized that we rarely had opportunity to sit down with them and talk about their stories and why they pick the industry they are in, and what draw them to a particular problem they are solving, and how they become who they are today. So this special series, Unstoppable Millennials. Feature inspiring stories of those emerging disruptors and change makers in technology, digital, and design, and we will be much focusing on the narrative on how those founders and disruptors found their way to their current role, either as being conventional or not. And we really hope to uncover moments of self-reflections and even doubts, also the ongoing search for the meaning of life. So the speaker we are having today、uh, is a good friend of mine, Trishala Perley. Trishala is a director of a strategy at Lumi.、Um, it is an award-winning education technology nonprofit that enables urban millennials with actionable, life-changing learnings and minutes. So Trishala also spent previous、uh, life in different kind of domains, such as professional services and. Technology companies and other not-for-profits, and building Canadian innovation. So, in this episode, we uncover a few topics,、uh, which I'm personally very passionate about, which is technology and education, and how this space is continuously evolving as the modern learners are craving for immersive learning experiences, in responding to this overly changing world around them. So, without further ado, and that's welcome Chishala to the podcast. Sure. So my name is Trishala,、um, and I have spent the past five years building Canadian technology companies.、Um, and I say Canadian technology companies because I think the tech ecosystem, the kind of companies we have in Toronto, at least, are very interesting, tackling really big problems. So I'm proud to have contributed、uh, to three Canadian organizations on that front. Um, as you said, Michelle, they span you know SaaS companies, for profits, nonprofits, professional services, and the core thread has really been aligning technology with some of society's most critical challenges. So that really brings me to where I am right now. At the moment, I'm the director of strategy at Rumi. We are an education technology nonprofit,、um, and have essentially built an open library of life and career skills. For anyone, anywhere to access and absorb、um, what we consider life-changing materials in minutes.、Um, on the side, I'm growing my own community called Jagad Community, which is centered on this concept of frugal innovation,、uh, and that's an Instagram community that's grown over the pandemic to about 6,000 people across 13 countries. And so that's something I'm nurturing on the side. And I know you transition from like typical like a big corporation that focusing on、um, growth and, and and innovation. But like, what made you、um, switch your career? Now you seems like focusing a lot on education. Yeah. So I think growing up, I was always really interested in philanthropy, but I never considered it to be a career path for myself. Because、um, you grow up hearing so many things about. 
how, you know, people tend to volunteer with nonprofits, but I had met very few people in my life who were working full time for nonprofits. And I wouldn't say it was necessarily encouraged either, because we tend to mm-hmm. associate nonprofits with being more slow moving and, you know, more bureaucratic. So it wasn't really something I ever considered for myself, but it was something that I wanted to do in that I always found that I was happiest when I was contributing to society, when I was volunteering my time, which I did a lot of growing up. I had a bit of a tug of war situation internally where I, I wanted to do it, but never really took the leap of faith. And then I joined, um, you know, I worked with Shopify to begin with and My Planet, which is a professional services company. And I think through both those experiences, I was able to witness just the power of technology and how much of an enabler it can be and how you can actually apply it to some of our most pressing challenges um, and create, you know, a wave of very accessible products and services. I almost started thinking that oh, technology is pretty philanthropic at its core. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think over the past three to four years, I was trying to find the best place for me um, that aligned technology with those needs. I think I had worked on a bunch of like commercialization of AI, enterprise AI, um, and I somewhere struggled to sort of find the broader, larger meaning to what I was contributing to. And I think it took a very specific moment when I was at the Consumer Electronics Show in 2019, and they have this sort of hall of fame for tech where they celebrate the latest in innovation. And I saw a series of products that I just felt somewhere was very fickle and shallow, you know, like an AI (laughs) manicure set. And I mean, not to say that I wouldn't purchase that, sure. (laughs) But I felt somewhere deep inside that the technology itself is so interesting. Why aren't we seeing more examples of organizations that are leveraging the latest in machine learning, for instance, to to just solve really big issues and Mm -hmm. advance UN sustainable development goals. So I actually started looking locally in Canada, and I found very few examples of organizations that were doing that. And I happened to stumble across one called Rumi, um, and it was a nonprofit. And I was immediately kind of deterred. I didn't want to see work for a nonprofit, um, but I felt it was really an interesting example of humane technology because here, you know, we are a small 15-15 team um, startup that's a nonprofit. But we're working with the latest in technology to help underserved youth in communities around the world. And I thought, okay, here's a really interesting use case. And I must say, after working at Rumi for a year now, it very much feels like a technology startup versus a nonprofit. Right. So, yeah, so that's kind of what led me here. I think I took little baby <laughs> steps um, as and when it felt comfortable. But I think with every experience, the signs just got louder and louder where I was increasingly thinking, like, there has to be more examples of companies doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to contribute to one of those. And so the timing was great. I think everything in life is about timing. Um, it just so happened when I got to that point in my life where I was ready to take the leap of faith, there was a role that emerged on Ruby's team that just fit perfectly with my skill set. And that's kind of what led me into this education and technology space. That's really interesting. So maybe just walk through like back in the day, right? When you try to evaluate different options, you also probably spend a lot of time networking. So what really made a difference? Like, did you happen to know someone who was in the industry you want to be in? Um, you see the impact there, then you decide to apply or, you know, you just happen to find this opportunity through like research and others? Yeah, no, I think, um, I, I love the question. I think for me, it's really been allowing myself to pursue my interests in its entirety. I think often we tend to put young people in the position where they have to pick their career path or, you know, (laughs) the subject of interest. Like we shouldn't really have to make those decisions at such a young age. Um, So though I, you know, did my degree in economics and I had a specialized focus there, I think the beauty of studying a course like economics, and I was very deliberate about that choice, was that it gives you options. You're learning a lot about the world. You're broadening your worldview. 
they're understanding the problems that exist in many different sectors and spaces. Um, so I think for me, my career in the past five years has really been about going wide. I purposely, very deliberately, with a lot of intention, went out of my way to find experiences that are very different mm-hmm. to one another, yet connected in some way, because I've, I've truly believed that problems are very, um, it, it's not one thing that's contributing to a problem. Often you need a very multidisciplinary lens to solve these issues. I've always felt very strongly about how can I limit myself to one discipline or working for one company when the world is not really a reflection of that. Um, and so, yeah, I think it was very, I decided very early on in my career that I want to experience working for a for-profit staff company, professional services. Um, and I loved working at a professional services company because I got to work with clients in so many different sectors and that way kind of understood what really interested me more. We were in our heads about not being distracted and, you know, staying focused and disciplined, which is important. But I really think what's helped me get to this point has been being open and then connecting the dots. That's the most important piece. Um, connecting the dots between those different experiences and seeing how it can make me a better professional um, when I bring it all together. Um, networking is huge for sure. I think, you know, Rumi, for instance, was a company that I saw back in 2013 or 2014 when I was in, in university in like my second or third year. Um, but it's been a, on my radar and I actively mm-hmm. sort of wrote it down on a list of companies I wanted to follow. Um, so I think you really need to be deliberate as well about those things, you know, network with the right people, stay flexible. Those have been some really important pieces. I spent, you know, pre-pandemic a lot of time going to different networking events. And, and even now, I think the beauty of growing up and building a career in this time is that everything is so accessible. You can plug into so many networks, whether it's partnerships, AI, I'm a part of so many digital communities, um, not just in North America, outside of North America as well. And I, I think it really helps me be a better person every day because I'm opening my eyes to different challenges, different perspectives. Um, and that goes a really long way. Uh, Chishala, it's really interesting how you actually play this long game, right? You deliberately want to do something that's high impact. And then you realize maybe in the very beginning, you need a different skill set. So you work in bigger organizations and get those uh, experiences. Then once you feel like, hey, you can get one or two steps further into where you want to do, then you just try to apply this right away. So I think it's a really fantastic story. Um, I know, you know, you mentioned a lot about the community building, especially nowadays. Uh, Obviously, the whole world is still um, in lockdown and we are Mm -hmm. missing this human connection. And, and I know you are the founder of uh, uh, Jergards. So what's the meaning of Jergards? This is an interesting name, right? And, and I feel like it means something really special in your culture. So what's Absolutely. a Jergard? <laughs> I would love to tell you about that. So, um, so yeah, I guess to go back to the roots of this term, I'll have to take a few steps back and tell you why I started this community to begin with. Um, so in 2019, I spent a lot of my time traveling and I was barely in Canada. I had a very, um, I feel like, North American role in that I was living in Canada, but really based in the US. Um, So I came out of that year not owning a kettle. (laughs) And, you know, simple life things. I didn't invest much in my home. I just, um, I didn't, there's so many basic life skills. I just didn't know. Uh, And I was really surprised I didn't know it. Um, But I didn't need to know it because we weren't in a situation where the world was locked down and, you know, um, we have to be very self-sufficient. And then the lockdown started in March. And I started feeling really overwhelmed. I was thinking, oh my God, like, how do I make do with what I have? How can I use my space resourcefully, you know, set up my home office, my workout space and my tiny Toronto condo. Um, And I found myself leaning into this very Indian concept called Jagad. Um, And Jagad, basically, it's a regional 
term in many Indian languages that loosely translates to like an ingenious fix or a life hack or essentially making do with what you have and being really resourceful. Uh, and so it's a term you hear all the time in India. You see so many examples of it. Um, I think it's, you tend to see it in a lot of emerging economies, developing countries where you're so resource constrained, so your only option is to make do with what you have. Um, so I really saw myself kind of leaning into that, and I would rely on these um, WhatsApp messages that my mother would send me with like recipes I could make during my quick 15-minute work lunch, uh, you know, simple life hacks. And I thought, okay, this is brilliant, and the videos and content she was sending me was great. So I thought, okay, I'm sure there are other people who are feeling the same way. How can I package this using the tools that already exist that I'm mm -hmm. on um, and essentially share it with people? And so I started taking my mom's images from WhatsApp, editing them on Canva, which is a fantastic tool and is totally democratized design, and I love it. So I started editing it on Canva and then put it up on Instagram. Um, and so organically, without spending any money in ads or anything um, it grew to a community of 6,000 people in under a year. And so I think, you know, I initially thought, okay, it would be an Indian audience that would gravitate towards this because it's an Indian term. But I soon realized after also just upskilling myself on this subject that it is a very global concept and it's known, you know, the essence of Jagat is captured in many cultures. Um, in Kenya, it's called Juakali. In Brazil, it's called Gambiara. So every country has their own version of Jagat that they sort of owned and claimed. But it's a universal concept. And I think that um, the reason why it's caught on is not just because of the pandemic, but generally we're in such a resource constrained world that people are asking themselves, you know, how can I do more and better with less? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it was, it's been fantastic. I mean, it's very much a community in that we have contributors from over 13 different countries. They send us their, you know, life hacks that have been passed on from generation to generation. Um, we launched a podcast. We finished a whole season where we've spoken to authors and scholars who have written papers on Jagat innovation in a product and business landscape. I connected with a documentary filmmaker who's actually Canadian who went to Mumbai to do a documentary on Jagad. Um, so it's been fascinating. I'm, I'm learning so much about this portion of my culture that I didn't know much about, frankly, prior to this pandemic. Um, and it's been a beautiful journey so far. And I think, um, yeah, lots of exciting things on that front, but that's kind of where Jagad comes from. So it's actually quite, it's an academic term. There's, you know, schools at universities like University of Cambridge with professors that are actually spending their time understanding this topic. If you go on google.org, um, their blog, Think with Google, they've written a fantastic blog post about Jagad innovation and how they're training their teams on how to lean into that Jagad mindset. And so it's different from a product process and, and framework because, you know, unlike, say, agile product mm -hmm. scrum methodologies, Jagat is very open. It doesn't really require, it's more rooted in spontaneity and intuition, and there's no, you know, steps to or method to madness. Um, so it's kind of different in that regard. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited about the role it will play in a post-pandemic world um, and the kind of opportunities it will, will create. I think we're already seeing so many wonderful products and services that are sustainable, vegan, cruelty-free. I purchased a wallet the other day from a brand called Samara, which is made out of apple peels, right? So I really think there's a lot more to come on that front. You find, I would say the similarity across different countries. And sure, me, yeah. I, I remember you spend tons of times traveling, right? And especially when you're young, like because of a family and you move mm -hmm. all around. Do you, do you feel like nowadays you're doing this like community building? It's, it's a way, it's kind of tribute to your past, tribute to your memory. In many ways, yes. I mean, I've always thought of the world as being global. Um, I've never had a local worldview. Um, and that's because growing up, like my family and I used to globetrot a lot, um, pretty much within the Middle East. But my sister and I, by the time we were like 15, we had already lived in six to seven different countries. 
Um, and so we kind of grew up really looking at the world as our oyster. We never, you know, even for instance, coming to Canada in 2012, from the moment I got here, I had been immersed in the community building aspect, volunteering my time with local organizations. Um, and some people would think, you know, like, you're not from here. Like, why do you care so much about Canadian issues and Canadian people? But I've generally always looked at it as like, these, like, if you make the world better for one person, one community, it gets better for everyone. So that's kind of the worldview I grew up with. Um, and we are, my parents were very deliberate about, you know, going back to like investments and, and learning and, you know, investing in yourself. My parents always were very clear that travel is such a beautiful way. If you can afford it and it's something you have access to, it's such a brilliant way to broaden your worldview. So we would go on trips like every summer to a different country. And so I think that all really had an influence. I would say for me, it's really my experiences in India that have probably shaped me as a community builder in the, the biggest way. I'm Indian. I never lived in India, but I would always go back every summer. Uh, since I was like six years old all the way up until I was like probably 2021. 20, um, and my grandfather was really huge in like community building and he would be very actively, he was like a past president for Rotary Club in the city that he's from. So we, my, my sister and I, Nikita, we would always go with him to geriatric center, you know, special needs centers. Um, and so we saw a lot of that from a young age. And I think in a society like India, we just have so many people. We're so resource constrained. There are so many different challenges, different kinds of people, different religions. It's like a myriad of just possibilities in my view. Um, and so I grew up really just seeing community come into action because in times of need, you really see, and I think there's no better place like India to see this in such an amplified sense. You see the community coming together to sort of rise as a collective. Uh, I think that has had a very lasting impression on myself as a community builder. You know, we also talk about this a lifelong journey, it's a lifelong learning. Definitely, I'm not surprised by, you know, based on previous experience and community building. And now you also just like a intellectual curiosity, right? So you want to combine, mm -hmm. I guess, what you have learned, share with the community. So ultimately, like we go back to the learning, right? There's a learning components in everything you do. And, and especially like not just in community, but also in your professional work. So that's talk about learning a little bit and then I do find especially in pandemic the modern learner it just evolving right and I remember when I grow up I mean I still went to a traditional school and, and you know just taking all the curriculum in and but nowadays um, Gen Z's are different and people are different people are learning in a very different way and you can't really constrain everyone just be sitting in the classroom and, and that's it right so so what's your thought on those I have learned so much about learning in the past year. I think I chose the right time to join an education nonprofit. <laughs> I, I joined Rumi actually the first week the whole team went remote um, at such a tumultuous year where I think education as a sector was so hardly hit by the pandemic. So I've learned a lot. I think the way I look at, firstly, for me, I, I draw a clear line between education and learning. I think they're both very fundamentally different things. Education, I associate with that would be more formal learning. You know, there's a process, there's a classroom teaching, you know, you come out of it with a credential or a degree, but learning is more ongoing. It's more self-directed. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's continuous learning to evolve and meet the needs of um, modern workplaces or what the jobs of the future really demand. Um, so I think that's one differentiation I've definitely learned in the past year working at Rumi. Um, the other thing is just in terms of modern learners during this pandemic, I find there's more time being spent behind screens. You know, people are actually, we see this even with professionals like you and I, where people are tired and it's harder to focus. Uh, and so attention spans, you know, what were limited have now decreased even more. 
I've heard stories from teachers and students and, and colleagues even with kids where there are children who are not showing up to Zoom classes. Um, yes. you know, and so I think it's really difficult as a, when you're looking at like the K-12 kids who are in high school or school, how do you enforce um, learning in that traditional sense in this digital environment? It's really difficult to do that. So as a result, you know, I personally see the students are very disengaged in what they're being taught. And I think one of the things to do with that is that the online training content is actually a really poor quality. I think we were so reactive, right? And it made sense when the pandemic first hit, people had to move online instantly. Mm -hmm. There's no time to think critically about, okay, how can I change and redesign this learning experience so it's better suited for that online environment? What people did was they moved textbooks online um, and literally classroom lectures into Zoom classes not realizing that I think in a digital environment to have effective learning, you need to actually completely redesign, rethink what the needs are and how you're engaging these students. So I don't really blame them for feeling disengaged. Um, I think the one thing I've seen through working at Rumi is that learning has definitely become more self-directed. It's become more independent. The onus is really on the individual to drive outcomes for themselves. You can't be complacent. You know, the students who will really thrive in this environment are the ones that take matters into their own hands and really um, be, become self-disciplined. Mm -hmm. And I think the other piece is I've noticed personally even through Rumi that there's a lot of people that are now interested in learning to learn. Um, it's a whole category we have on Rumi actually um, and you'll find a bunch of micro courses on how to learn and that's become really interesting. You know it's a whole subset of topics around how, what kind of digital tools can you use to make you a better learner? How do you assess what are the right learning sources and materials for you online? So I've seen that as a category really amplify where people are interested in becoming a better learner. What does that require in this digital landscape? Um, other things that have stood out to me is the social skills and interpersonal skills has really taken a huge hit. Um, mm -hmm. I'm hearing so many st stories from, from students who, or parents rather, who are concerned that their children are not really interacting with other kids. They're, they're demonstrating signs of social anxiety when they're now put into a situation. I think technology can play a role in that even though we're distanced and we're not able to meet friends or go to a playground and, you know, there are certain precautions in place, you can certainly leverage technologies like AR, you know, virtual reality, augmented reality. Um, to immerse children in those scenarios, right, so that they're still able to train that muscle. Of course, it will never replace human-to-human -human interaction, but I think that's an a opportunity and a challenge that exists as well. So, yeah, lots of interesting things. I think yeah. one thing that's really stood out to me is that, like, is digital learning is very rooted in, in access, and I think there are many communities in Canada that we would consider, you know, a developed nation. There's so many people right around the corner from where we live who don't have access to a device or to reliable connectivity. I mean, I'm living in a downtown condo and I still struggle with reliable <laughs> connectivity. So I think the disparities have, have become very amplified. And so even though you're a modern learner, depending on what you have access to, the experience can be dramatically different. Yeah, absolutely. So when you mentioned the technology, I know you, you also have done your own research. Um, and voice technology using in learning. So like, especially nowadays, there's a debate between like, what kind of a, yes, a attention economy we are in, right? And I think a couple of years back, Instagram was mostly on the visual side, right? Now, mm -hmm. um, Clubhouse tried to experiment with a voice. So, yeah. so, so what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I think there are many opportunities for voice technology. I definitely think prior to Rumi, I was working in the voice tech space for almost three years, really immersed into where all of this is heading, working with like the key platform players, which was at the time Google and Alexa, so Amazon, Samsung. So it was really, I, I had a very unique insight into what was going on. I think the possibilities are immense. 
I think there are some very real challenges. The obvious one being privacy and security, especially when you're taking it into an education setting. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is also just the general ability for the device to understand what you're saying. I think, you know, children, younger audiences, they tend to enunciate differently. It's not as, you know, traditional spoken. Um, it, it doesn't follow a very standard pattern that the devices today are able to understand. So I think that's a challenge. So everything I say about voice is, I say it with the assumption that let's assume we're at a point where these devices can understand you. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that's when we can actually think more critically about the possibilities. And frankly, I think we're still miles away from being able to have an effortless, seamless interaction with a voice device. It's still going to take a while for us to get there. But from an education perspective, I think the biggest opportunities for voice technology lie in um, the personalized learning aspect. And I think it's particularly big in developing nations where you've got, you know, one teacher teaching almost 50 to 60 students, right? The ability to have this voice assistant in your classroom and to kind of offload these routine tasks to the device so that the device can now answer, you know, routine questions, that you can set reminders, you can answer questions on, you know, the next test exams or practice questions. I think there's so much that can help teachers manage their own productivity and be more efficient. At the same time, it provides a very communal sort of learning experience because you've got this one voice assistant but the whole classroom is able to participate um so i think treating it like a participant in what's happening in the classroom is very exciting Mm -hmm. unlike screens where we're all looking down at our screens you know i love that voice actually allows you to project yourself it helps you with that social people skills because you can look at your classmates eye to eye you're not hiding (laughs) behind the screen right so in some senses, I think that's also very interesting. The part of voice that is most exciting to me now, having worked at a nonprofit, digital equity is everything to me right now. It's like front and center. And I think voice has a really big role to play because unlike a laptop, for instance, where each student has to have their own laptop, you know, one voice assistant can very effectively serve a whole classroom of students. So it really mm-hmm. promotes digital equity in many ways. So yeah, so I think those are some of the examples of of where it can be effective. But taking a few steps back into tech and education, I think what I'm most excited about is this low-tech to high-tech sort of spectrum. Um, I think when we think about technology, we always bias ourselves and skew very heavily towards virtual reality, AR, like the latest in tech and what's new. But having worked at Rumi now, I think the the next wave of products and services um, that are accessible and inclusive, that serve work for people, not against them, are going to be the ones that sit somewhere on the spectrum of low to high tech and are kind of omni-channel learning. So when I say low to high tech, I mean, you know, SMS delivered learning to your AR, VR kind of spectrum. I think that's really important because access is everything when it comes to education solutions. Mm-hmm. And we have to recognize the, the pandemic has set us, you know, 30 years behind in our goals. And we have to recognize that there are many people who are still offline. Uh, yeah. And so how do you serve them? You know, if you really want to build tools that are accessible, there needs to be that, I would say, not even low tech, no tech to high tech. Um, because there are some scenarios where no technology is the best solution, where you want to teach children how to have a better attention span or how to mm-hmm. interact. You know, the human interaction is going to make you a very indispensable sort of individual in the future. So I think um, that's really what I've learned to appreciate working at Rumi, that it's not just AI, machine learning, data, but it's looking at the whole gamut, the whole ecosystem, uh, and the different tools and players that exist within that. 
to develop the next best sort of wave of products and services. Yeah, absolutely. I love how you mentioned immersive technologies, um, especially like, yes, on one hand, making the learning environment a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, accessible, but then on the other hand, and I think the immersive um, environment we are in is also putting like psychological toward um, certain individuals, especially like maybe they tend to be younger. Can you share some thoughts just around the same topic? Like, will be like long-term psychological impact because now we're all in this like we call this uh, attention economy and especially when a lot of younger people like live alone moving away from family um, I guess uh, increased uh, pressure coming from work and also peers so many of them and they do turn to social media for instant gratifications and comfort mm-hmm. and what do you think about this uh, the long-term impact of the phenomenon? Yeah I think if anyone has watched The Social Dilemma on um, Netflix, you know, it's, we're all aware. In fact, sometimes we know and we're still, you know, knowingly participating in these social media platforms. It's become some kind of like an addiction now. And I think that's because there's a sense of FOMO, right? Clubhouse is a perfect example of that. Um, it's iOS only. And so people have been swarming to Clubhouse and those who are not on it, you know, there's a sense of like, oh my God, I'm missing out on something. Um, so I think that has this long-term impact on us, that, that fear and that feeling of like, oh my God, if I'm not connected 24-7, you know, virtually, if I'm not following, if I'm not here or there, I'm missing out on opportunities or I'm going to be left behind. I think that definitely has a long-term impact and can manifest itself in very interesting ways in your day-to-day life. I think generally um, the one, the things that are very problematic for me is the impact it has on self-esteem and confidence. Uh, I think, you know, if you watch the social dilemma, you'll see that there's something now called Snapchat dysmorphia, where young girls particularly are trying to look like the filter version of themselves in real life, which is an unbelievable sort of standard of beauty to hold yourself to, not even natural. Um, so I think there's things like that where, where self-esteem, and self-esteem can be a very ugly thing to deal with, a lack mm-hmm. of self-esteem, right? Because it's not just about your external, your beauty or how you look, but it can actually completely diminish your ability to achieve your goals and realize your potential. And so I think um, that's where like social media has really messed up a younger generation in that they are so just easily able to compare themselves to others and they're so easily influenced and that ability to sort of somewhere regain control um, has been lost over the years. I will say, I think things are much more promising now with this heightened awareness around these social media platforms. You know, the, the company behind the social dilemma is a organization called the Humane um, Technology Institute, Center for Humane Technology. Mm-hmm. And they now publish, you know, fantastic research papers and are engaging a young audience through right. campaigns and, you know, meeting them where they are. And I think that awareness, even just speaking for myself personally, is helping young people regain control and use these tools for more, with more intention. I think the one thing we need to be clear of is that there are beautiful things that can happen on social media. And we've seen that, right? Acts of activism, acts of generosity. Um, There's a lot of awareness of different issues and campaigns. Um, There are beautiful things that can happen. We just as individuals need to regain our control and also use it with more intention. Uh, And I think if we're able to do that and ensure that these platforms don't unleash the worst in humanity, um, we can reap the benefits. That's not to say that organizations aren't accountable at all. 100%, you know, organizations like Facebook or Google, they need to hold themselves accountable to a certain standard of, you know, to avoid manipulation and mm-hmm. ads, and they need to have better policies in place. Um, that being said, I think there's a lot we can do to take control of our own digital well-being. Um, and I think I'm most, what I'm most interested about is the wave of new social media platforms you're going to see. I think now with this heightened awareness, 
there are so many interesting startups that are coming up, online communities, you know, there, there are so many I'm thinking of on the top of my head right now um, that are social platforms centered around learning. I would also mm-hmm. call them social learning platforms. You know, Clubhouse is an example of that. It's essentially a learning tool with audio. Um, so I think that's going to be really interesting because you're using what social media has done well in the past, which is engagement. Um, but you're using that to drive positive out- outcomes for individuals. Um, I think apps like Duolingo, for instance, uh, are fantastic examples of that. Like it's a game-like experience. You almost don't feel like you're learning, but it's so effective and such an efficient learning experience um, that is still rooted in that social element. So I'm really excited to witness that. And I think you're going to also see mainstream social media platforms do that. I mean, TikTok Mm -hmm. is an early example of it. They've got their their regular TikTok platform and then TikTok learning, um, which is essentially adapting their format into learning materials. And I think that's really great. And we see, I definitely do think that I'm betting on seeing more platforms like Instagram and stuff come out with their own learning components um, Mm -hmm. that are true to what they do well, but is is more rooted in, in what, frankly, consumers are looking for now. Absolutely. Also reading a couple of research papers, um, especially nowadays, all the information has been like updated within, I guess, 4.5 years, you know, the whole human uh, accumulation of a knowledge will be doubled, right? And obviously increasing um, year after year is acceleration of information. And then on the other hand, it's also the things we learn maybe like back in the days and quickly become obsolete. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, it's a time, it's important for everyone to have this like mindful thinking, but at the same time, there's also a higher requirement to, um, to, be, to have the ability to rethink, right? Basically, yeah. people or individuals with a high intelligence are actually are having a harder time to rethink just because they were so good at recognizing patterns. Mm-hmm. I find this fascinating because, you know, normally you will be like one with a higher IQ, will be doing so much better in life. Yep. But in current environment, it's not necessarily true just because we also need to remember this ability to, to rethink. Um, I don't know if you want to share your thoughts just around this yeah. topic. <laughs> I, think, I think when social media platforms are honestly, all the tech that we are using today, when these products and platforms came out, it didn't really come with a how-to guide, right? None of us went through the formal training of how do you use these platforms. We kind of just like developed our understanding of it as we went along and then got to a point where we realized, oh my gosh, there are genuine concerns with, with what we've become, right? So I definitely, I think like, I, I agree with you. In, in most cases, it's like re, relearning. But I also think in new cases, it's kind of um, acknowledging that um, there, where no rules were made, you have an opportunity to set your own set of rules for what works for yourself. I think all these platforms, individuals as well, we're all unique individuals with a unique set of needs, right? How I use WhatsApp, for instance, might not be the best way for someone else to use WhatsApp. So Mm -hmm. it's a very personal decision. And I think sometimes you see a lot in education, especially in adult education, right? There's a tendency to sort of like babysit students and like you tell them what to do. I think we need to get to a point where we recognize that whether you're 15 or 35, you are able to make your own decisions and that Mm -hmm. you you need to to be empowered in, in knowing that this tool exists and you can use it in any way that you want. Yeah. I think when it comes to learning and rethinking, um, something I find very interesting, and I'm not sure if you, you're familiar with Kai-Fu Lee. Yeah, so maybe just for the uh, listeners' information. So Kai-Fu Lee is a founders of uh, Sina Venture, which is a VC firm in China. And previously, Kai-Fu Lee also uh, serve uh, a different technology companies, including Microsoft and Google. I think at a one point of time, Kai-Fu Lee was a, a senior executive at Google China. So definitely a very interesting person to follow if you want to know more about uh, Chinese developments in AIs and, and data science as well. Um, but he's written a lot of you know, profound literature on AI and the impact it will have on, on humans and society. 
Um, and something he talks a lot about is how, you know, machines will continue to get smarter, but they'll never be able to replicate those innately human skills, right, that are mm -hmm. so human, like the ability to empathize, to have compassion. Traditionally, we look at those skills as being soft skills, but what he's trying to say is that soft skills are not going to be, um, those are going to be the skills that are going to be in demand in a couple of years from now, if not already. So I think the ability to even just take a step back and recognize that, okay, I might have my degree in STEM, I might have these credentials or these Coursera courses I've taken in data science, but mm -hmm. the ability to be double down on investing in the skills that are innately human is equally yes. important. And I think that's really the fundamental driving force behind Rumi. Um, we've built a library that is focused entirely on 21st century life and career skills that are very much innately human. You know, right from knowing how to grocery shop for one to how to be there for a friend who's grieving, right? These human skills that are very hard to develop and frankly, you're not formally trained on them in school. Um, we never learn how to be there for a friend when they're grieving in school. That's not something you learn. Um, but you develop empathy and compassion, which are skills that can actually go such a long way um, and help you in being a better human, a better professional. Um, so I think when it comes to rethinking and relearning, I'm really excited about this next wave of, of students that are going to double down, not just on their hard skills, but their soft skills as well. Um, and that's really what's going to make them, the latter is what's going to make them indispensable. That's amazing. What, what's your routine? What's your secret of keep yourself updated? Like could be any kind of social media you're following or mm -hmm. any kind of a, a, you know, routine you have to keep yourself up to date. Yeah. That's a great question. I wish I had a, a glamorous answer um, to say, like, I'm reading this book by this author, <laughs> but, you know, the truth to my upskilling and staying up to date is simple Google search alerts. Um, I have relied on that for the longest time. In fact, when I, my degree and my academic background is in economics, I, I knew very little about technology and AI. Um, and when I joined my planet, which is really the first place where I started developing my own thought leadership and opinion on this space, I realized there was so much I didn't know and things were changing daily. So if you, so I started doing this, I would recommend this to everyone as a simple, affordable, free life hack. Um, you basically just set, you know, search alerts, daily search alerts with the key terms that you care about. For me, for the past five years, it's been artificial intelligence, machine learning, mm -hmm. deep learning. It's been technology in general, social impact, education, learning. I have around 20 key terms that I really care about. And essentially at 5 p.m., those come into my inbox and I go through them. You know, sometimes I'm going into specific links. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'm just, you know, skimming through it to know what the headlines are. You know, different days are busy and, and unique in their own ways. Um, but I've really found that to be such a great, effective, um, easy thing to do. And I, you know, the days where I'm busy, I, I, it's still in my inbox. I can go back to it, you know, the next day. And so that's really what helps me stay up to date. Uh, and so, yeah, it's not a, it's not a book or a movie or a magazine, um, but it's, it's really damn effective. But it's a true reflection of a modern learner because we all have this fragmentation of, uh, you know, information and just coming at yeah. different times. So. Um, so I've always tried to approach things with curiosity versus the burden of like, I need to know this to be successful. Um, and I think when you approach things with curiosity, you also open the doors to a larger set of possibilities because you're suddenly then, you know, you're, it's like digging for gold. You dig a little bit and then you're, you keep going, right? And it goes, it becomes a deep sort of rabbit hole. Um, so I think for me, curiosity has really been this, the secret sauce. I think it's also at some level, you know, we talk a lot about mindfulness and meditation and awareness, but I think um, awareness and being so, being so self-aware of 
what your personal needs are. How do you learn as a learner? You know, reflecting. I cannot stress enough the importance of journaling and just reflecting. Even if you don't write it down, take a couple of minutes out in the day to reflect on, okay, if you learned something, what, do, what does that mean in the larger context of your life or in the world around you? I think that's really big. I think from a very young age, I got into the habit of observing. I wasn't much of a reader when I was younger, and I still, in all honesty, I'm not much of a reader. But when I, uh, and I want to get better at reading, but when I look around me at everything happening, I would often observe things and just have a conversation in my own mind. Of, okay, why is this person behaving in this way? Or why is the situation like that? What is contributing to that? So I think it's very important to do that. Have I think we're in a world where, like you said, we're so digitally connected. And I think everyone now, this pandemic has really amplified this. We realize we spent way too much time with people who didn't really offer much to our soul and like, you know, just for sake of like, busy work, essentially. So I think it's so important to do that. It makes you a better learner. Just having more conversations with yourself in your mind, writing it down. You know, why do you feel a certain way about a topic? What do you not know about this topic? Why are, did this happen in this experience and this happened in this experience? How can you connect the two? Um, I think that's really, really important because the, re the reality is we, we have access to an abundance of information, right? You, if you want to know something, you can pick up your phone and Google it and get the answers immediately. I think what's missing is the ability to connect the dots um, and to really introspect. That's what Google can't do for you. That's what Google search alerts can't do for you. And I think that's where we need to train ourselves. And that's where I spend a lot of my time as a learner. It's the curiosity and then the retrospection and reflection piece. I think there's a nice ending to the whole uh, podcast. Thank you so much, Shashala. This has been a wonderful conversation, even just for myself. And I'm learning so much just in terms of my own learning methods and what I can do to apply. Um, just, you know, making myself a better learner um, because we're all in this uh, long journey together. <laughs> If you like what you just heard, please consider supporting us by subscribing to our podcast. Personally, I have learned so much from the conversation and I'd love to hear what you think. If you want to get in touch with us, our Twitter account is ABD Toronto, and we are also active on LinkedIn. Just search Analytics by Design. We are all volunteers who work in diverse industries and happy to connect with you again in our next episode. Last but not least, I just have to mention this. Comments, views, and opinions expressed in the podcast do not constitute as business or investment advice. Comments mentioned by podcast participants are solely their own, do not reflect opinions of Analytic by Design or its constituents. I will see you next time. <laughs>